This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High quality information. Because high quality information informs much better decision making. Dittman Research has been providing high quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Okay, back here with uh, Becky Wint Pearson from GCI, former municipal attorney. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Joe. We had a little bit of a rough start there. Luckily, I noticed the issue very quickly. It's okay. He resolved it quickly. I told you I recorded a podcast once with Bill Evans maybe a year ago. It was like the greatest fucking podcast ever. It was like it was like an epic podcast. Yeah. And there was an audio issue with the file and it got corrupted. Oh, so I had disaster. to call Bill and say, come back for a... Oh, we came back. That's he, good. We did another one. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, so I'm happy to have you here. Uh, we've been trying to do this for a while. I was in Juneau, um, but you're with GCI now, but you were the former municipal attorney. It was, um, yeah. For, for a while. And I just realized you told me you left in February 2020. I did, yeah. It so was, was that lucky or timing. did you see, see something coming? Or? <laughs> I would like to say that I accurately predicted the mayhem that would befall the municipality in the winter of 2020, but I did not at all. It was a, it was a completely and actually, ironically, when... You know, Ona Browse and I, uh, and the mayor's chief of staff and I announced our departures the same day. And oh, yeah, that was it came at the same time, yep. right? And we were talking about it and we were like, you know, it's in the last 18 months, the administration, like, we'd had advice from staffers at the muni that said, you know, in the last nine months, you can barely get anything done anyway. You know, it's, everyone sees you on the way out. So we thought, oh, it's going to be super uneventful, right? We've gone through, we lived through the earthquake, the first declaration of an, a state of emergency that the city had ever, the municipality had ever done. We'd, you know, gone through some tough budget, you know, seasons and we'd sold, we were effectively had sold municipal light and power, which was the biggest transaction in the municipality's history. And we thought, well, you know, how it was like it's a billion be, dollars. Yeah, right? it's going to be really calm from here on out. And uh, clearly was not the case. <laughs> so it ended up being uh, kind of a serendipitous uh, time to, to have departed. A lot of times it's like the mayor and the second term or the governor, they try to go for like the legacy mm-hmm. at the end. So they focus more on like let's let's kind of lock in you know what we did or you missed you missed two pretty big ones. I did the COVID and the the Athens. Yes, <laughs> I did miss two significant events. Those were maybe bigger than the earthquake or the they MLP. Were, right? I mean, we like it's but that's wild, right? I mean, we had never we literally never declared a state of emergency as a municipality prior to the earthquake, and then. You know, to have to go straight from that to like a you know this this ongoing COVID-related mm-hmm. disaster emergency and a mayoral resignation that was certainly not anticipated at the time we left. So I want to go into that um, later, but you're back at GCI. You were at GCI before. I was. I was. I came to the municipality from GCI. I'd been at GCI for a few years. I was in private practice for a number of years, and then I went to GCI and did not in any way intend to leave GCI, just had the opportunity present itself to go join uh, the Brookman's administration and made the choice to to follow that opportunity and then had the lucky opportunity to come back to GCI in my new role as general counsel this past you know, year ago, a little more than a year ago. So back in like way further up, you're not from Alaska, you're from, you said New York, right? I'm not, yeah, I'm from rural northern New York, the part of New York that I think very few people even think about as part of New York. I'm from up by the Canadian border north of the Adirondack Park, a town of about 5,000 people called Canton, which has winters that are similar to Fairbanks and summer, actually summers that are kind of similar to Fairbanks too. Warmer summers, very cold winters. A lot of history in that part of uh, New York. Yeah, a lot of history. I read um, Team of Rivals, Oh, you know, and they talk a lot about Seward, obviously, in Mm -hmm. New York. And um, they talk a lot about kind of how he was in New York and he was almost supposed to be president, you know. Mm -hmm. Lincoln got him. Very tricky. (laughs) So where did you go to law school? Uh, I went to law school at Yale in Connecticut. Um, oh, that's a big one. That's a, I think I knew that. That's a that's a big one. It's actually a small one. It's, I mean, it's a good it's one. A, it's a good the one. big contrast between Yale and Harvard is that Yale has very small graduating classes compared to Harvard Law School, so it's a very different experience. It's a small law school. Uh, has a unique grading structure, so it's relatively non-competitive, a small community. So, did, yeah. Did I know several folks went? Did you have any 
classmates now that are in Alaska that went to Yale or well ironically right if you look at the municipal government for a time there Didn't Bill uh, Falsey yeah Bill Falsey was municipal manager and Forrest Dunbar for a time was chair of the assembly and I was municipal attorney and we are all Yale law alums and Kate Vogel who replaced me as was also there any overlap when you guys were there or was it different times uh Bill I think graduated Bill and I are the same age but he was uh he went straight to law school from uh, from college, and I took a number of years off. So I think I sort of started at Yale right after he left. Forrest and I, I think, overlapped by a year. I think he started right before I left. And so I, Kate and I were there at the same time. So how did you get to Alaska? Have you, have you have any connections here? Did you have any reason to come here, or was it a job? Uh, it was It was sort of a common, it was kind of, I feel like, the classic lawyer story, right? Like I uh, was actually, I was about 30 when I finished law school, and I was supposed to go back to a job in Manhattan at a law firm in New York that I actually had enjoyed working for. Um, and But I was, I kind of felt like I, I was ready to not, I didn't really want to be 30 and living in a shoebox apartment in Queens and working crazy hours. And I came to um, Alaska to visit, at the end of my 2L summer, um, I was supposed to go on a longer vacation with my college roommate. She had to go to a family wedding, and I came up here on a Habitat for Humanity trip and built houses in Mountain View and just really liked Anchorage. It feels a lot like where I'm from, except it has bigger mountains and better, I was say better some... bigger mountains and better jobs, really, is the, is the reality, right? Upstate New York has a, has, it does not have the economic opportunity that, that Anchorage does and particularly did at that point. Um, and so I, uh, applied for a clerkship on the state Supreme court. They recruit across the company, across the country. They come to Yale. And so I, a lot got of folks that. have come up here doing that. Yeah. Lawyers. That's the classic lawyer story. You come here for a year in clerk and then you realize that you never want to live anywhere else. And then you end up staying. So. Who'd you clerk for? Uh, I clerked for Morgan Kristen during the few years that she was on the state Supreme court before she moved to the ninth circuit. So what did you do? Um, from undergraduate to law school, you took four or five years off, right? I did. I did a variety of things. Uh, I first worked as a travel writer. I wrote copy about um, no southern way. Germany for Let's Go. I covered Bavaria uh, and Munich, so Munich and the whole state of Bavaria. I wrote copy about the Bavarian Alps and national parks down there. Um, I after that, I taught at a tuition-free private school for low-income girls in Dorchester, which is a part of Boston. Um, from there, isn't that like I, one of the hardcore parts, like the all the crime and the yeah, the it's Dor- a like Southie Dor- isn't there? Yeah, my friend, friend Carolyn's from Boston. I always ask her about Carolyn Hall. You probably know Carolyn. Yeah, I do. And uh, Dorchester is a large neighborhood. It has a number of different pocket neighborhoods and various different populations that live there. The part of Dorchester that I taught in was very diverse. We had a tremendously diverse student body, all low income students. Um, and it was a, it was a really unique environment. It's actually run by the School Sisters of Notre Dame, which is an order of nuns whose entire focus is on creating educational opportunities for women. Um, Indiana, Indiana, Notre Dame, right? No, they're I actually I don't know exactly where their international headquarters is, but they're all over the world. So the nuns I, ta- I worked for, they had taught in Africa and in South America and all these different places, and then they were now running the school for for girls in Dorchester. But so I worked there, and then I um, I got a summer job working for a long shot presidential candidate named Howard Dean. Uh, oh, and, no way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I haven't heard that name in a while. Yeah, exactly. So I sold everything I owned, got in my, in my Dodge Neon, drove it to New Hampshire where I was going to work for Howard Dean for a few months. You know, he was going to make some points about, uh, you know, getting us out of the war in Iraq. And was that 04? That was, uh, I moved there in the summer of 03. This was in that was the 04 election, the primary. Right? Yeah, it was the 04 election. Because he was, what, he, what, he was governor. He was governor of Vermont. And didn't he say something that really caught, something happened where it really well, caught yes. on? Because I remember I moved here in 04, I was kind of younger, but. Well, he gave us, if I remember correctly, he gave a speech, I think it was at the DNC about, and he talked about, he kind of openly expressed his opposition to the war in Iraq, and he was more out on a limb about health care than any of the candidates at the time. So those are the things that attracted to me. It was his, you know, his, those two positions that he'd taken. I really felt like he had some good things to say about, about health care. I was in a place where I was teaching uh, and just really, it was very clear to me, the students that I taught, the huge impact that a lack of access to healthcare was having in oh, their yeah. lives, you know, an inability to get glasses, an inability to get basic care for things that really impeded their ability to learn. So I, you know, thought I'll go work for this guy for a few months and he'll make some interesting points and then he'll probably not go any further and I'll go back to teaching. And instead, by the end of the summer, he 
was way ahead in the polls and we had a much more legitimate campaign operation in New Hampshire. So I stayed uh, there uh, with the Dean campaign through the end of the New Hampshire primary, just before the New Hampshire primary, as you may remember, he screamed wildly in Iowa and that had a very... Maybe that, yeah, I know he did something that was like... (laughs) Because that was the one where Kerry ended up being the nominee. Right? Yeah, John he did. Yep. But I feel like Howard Dean, this is a long time ago. I was only 19 in 04 but when I moved here. But I remember there was like a big, he had like a Ron Paul type thing. And like, oh, wait, he caught on for a while. And yeah. it was like a big, big thing. He was way ahead through most of the fall. He was ahead by August and he was way ahead through most of the fall. His lead had started to crumble in a variety of different kind of ways before we got to the primary season. My impression of the Iowa operation is that they didn't have a great organized field operation to get people to the caucuses. I don't know. I wasn't on the ground there, but, and then he had this wild screaming moment, which was, that's right. He was like, ah, I remember that when he, that's what that was, which a lot of people I knew were in the room. Right. And said that was really a product of how he was mic'd on TV. Right. Like in the room, we couldn't hear it Mm -hmm. at all, but it sounded crazy on TV. Um, Who else was it? Was Carrie, him, Wes Clark. Wes Clark was like they thought he was going to get a lot of traction for a while. There was a whole ton. Was Dennis? That. Was Dennis Kucinich? Yeah, I think was involved. In there he too. was in 08, too. He was around. Yep, he's had a couple of different runs. So anyway, well, you worked on the Howard Dean. Do you, do you like did. know him? Could you call him right now? Or no, I couldn't. Call buddies him right with now. him? I did, was not buddies with him. I worked in New Hampshire field. I did drive him around a bit and get some time to talk with him. But I, he, we are definitely not buddies. I would not say that I could give him a call. So you did all this stuff, and then you decided... Well, there's more. This is not where it ends. So uh, he screams in Iowa. I end up um, getting... You know, they stopped paying us, basically, at the moment that he screamed in Iowa. <laughs> so <laughs> a direct impact on my life. Um, and then after the primary, so I decided to stay in New Hampshire. I worked for a peace-based community for abused and neglected boys, um, which my brother affectionately refers to as the forced vegetarian farm. For a while. Where's that at? Uh, it's in Rumney, New Hampshire. So, so you had the girls' school, but then you went to the boys. Yes, I was doing the tour of, of uh, educational institutions for youth. And then after that, I worked for a couple years at Dartmouth College with undergraduates on community service projects and then decided I needed to kind of have a longer-term life direction, and I went to law school. It's kind of the gambit in your, in, your, in your off year. So I know a lot of lawyers who did that and other ones who went straight through. It seems like the ones who did waited three or four or five years, they always say they really like happy they did that. Yeah, I was really happy. I mean, it helped me figure out what I cared about in a career in a sense that I didn't have a, a sense of when I was a student. I think when I was a student, I thought a lot about well, like what's the, you know, what is, what is the ideal you're working for in a job? I didn't think a lot about like, you know, what do I really want to do day in and day out? How much do I want to have to think? How much do I want to have to interact with people? Do I like working with teams? Do I like arguing? Do I, what do mm-hmm. I want to know about? And I think that helped me pick, I would not have gone to law school directly out of school. Clearly I didn't make that choice. And I ended up really liking law school and really liking being a lawyer. And I think that having been out for a few years helped me make a, make that choice in a more informed way. So I assume when you were clerking, is that when you met your husband? Uh, no? Well, actually, initially, yes. I met my husband initially actually at Bill Falsey's house. It was the house that Bill Falsey was no longer living in. He had moved back east and left his house in Rogers Park as a rental for some other young lawyers. And there was like a young lawyer's party. And I met my husband there for the first time. And I made what I thought was a really funny joke. And he did not think it was funny. And I was oh like, gosh, well, this, was like a mom I, was, joke? I don't even remember. I was like, oh, this guy and I are clearly never going to be friends because he just doesn't you know, doesn't think that I'm hilarious, which I clearly am. Um, and, (laughs) (laughs) and so, so he, uh, so we met in passing there and then we ended up playing on the same young lawyers softball team. Um, and at the time I had another boyfriend and he invited me to be on, actually I invited him first to be on my, um, uh, fireweed road relay team, the bike road relay race. And then Is we it had the 400 thing. Or yeah, that? we were doing the 200 mile, not the 400 mile. That's crazy. Wow. And then we, you don't do the whole 200 miles. You do it in, in chunks. Mm-hmm. So we do about 50 a piece. So I invited him to do that. And then we, um, we had to cancel that for some reason. I think my dad ended up visiting or something. So I couldn't do that. So then he in return invited me to be on his Klondike road relay team. And then we did that together and then sort of progressively, you know, became better friends and, and started dating. And so at that point, were you planning on staying up here or I was, I had actually already gotten a job at the end of my clerkship year. I got a job with Ashburn Mason local firm. 
Um, and so already was planning to do that and had transitioned to that role by the time he and I actually started dating. My friend Lee Baxter, he's a big fan of Bill Pearson. Yeah, Bill Pearson is a big fan of Lee Baxter. He, he said he's like one of those lawyers he loves that cares more about fishing and going out on the weekends. And I think that's true. The law, you know, the law. Some of those people, true. all they do is work, you know, 20 hours a day. Bill has a good balance. He cares a lot about. I met him at the mayor's ball a couple yeah. of years ago. He was, he was, we're doing the little photo booth thing. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Yeah. So you met, how long ago? That was like 10 I remember. Oh gosh. The math here. We've been married. Well, let's see. We've been together 10 years. We got married in 2013, but we started dating in 2011. Did you ever think or plan on marrying a lawyer? Like, was that part of the, <laughs> you know, because a lot of times lawyers do, because they're with lawyers, a lot of lawyers do marry lawyers. Yeah, no, I definitely did not think that I was going to marry a lawyer. And I think honestly, like the, the, I mean, I'm biased because I am an Alaska lawyer, but I feel like the lawyers in Alaska are a lot more fun than lawyers. Like if I was, if I had gone to practice in New York City and someone had said, you know, like, do you want to go to a young lawyer's shindig? I probably would have like backed out of the room slowly. And here actually, I mean, I think the, I have a great group of friends who were lawyers. We have a, like the young lawyers organization here was always great and fun when I was, you know, an age where I was doing those things. And so I did not intend to marry a lawyer, for sure. A little more loose up here. Yeah, a little more fun. So that, that's the thing is like, you know, a lot of these people go to law school, and I like to go into law school. I graduated in 09. I took the LSAT, didn't study, did horrible, mm-hmm. thank God, because, you know, people borrow all this money for some of these schools, and on the East Coast they get a job, you know, which they have to pay the loans back, and they end up working like, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and you're in a big city, so maybe it's not as enjoyable if you're in Alaska, and there's a lot more to do. Yeah. Oh, no, certainly. I think people have a much better quality of life here. And I mean, why would you live here if you were going to work 100 hours a week, right? I mean, it's like you live somewhere like New York where you can get your clothes dry cleaned at two in the morning, right? And where there isn't anything. I can't. I've never, I mean, I've moved here when I was 19 and 04, and I grew up in New Mexico. Oh, okay. Albuquerque. Oh. Which, you know, I know people that have huh. lived in like New York, Chicago, you know, and it's, it's like fun in a lot of ways. But during the COVID, actually, it's pretty fascinating how many people college students and just younger people came back to Alaska yeah. because it was so much better being here than being stuck in like an apartment in New York or Chicago or Seattle. Oh yeah. So a lot of people came back here. Yeah. No, it's definitely, I mean, I've been continuously grateful for how nice it's been to be here during this. I have a lot of friends in the Northeast and the challenges of trying to, I mean, we at least can always get outside. We have good, you know, outdoor green space. that's not too crowded and it's just been. Remember last summer, uh, things were pretty normal. Yeah. Where you're wa- watching, you know, and these cities are shut down and nobody can go anywhere. Yeah. And it, it, ugh, I don't even want to imagine that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have been here and not in the Northeast anymore doing this. So how did you, you were Ashburn and Mason and at some point in GCI? Yeah, I was at Ashburn and Mason for about five years. I became a shareholder there. That's a, it's a wonderful firm, a fun group of people and really interesting practice. I did mostly kind of land and local government law things. We'll talk about, we'll talk about a little bit later. We'll talk about the Campbell Lake. Yeah, we can talk about That's a good one. land law, particularly. And I actually sort of laid the, the, the groundwork for that when I was Ashburn and Mason. I don't know if you and I ever talked about this, that I was involved in work on the Sturgeon case when I well, was I at Ashburn and Mason. Yeah, because Ashburn represented John Sturgeon. Right. I didn't know you were involved in that. It was very beginning, right? I, I mean, this was that case went on for years and years and years. So that's part of the reason Campbell Lake landed in my lap, because I actually had some kind of context for the law of navigable waters in Alaska. That's the, was the beginning of that knowledge. Um, but yeah, so I left Ashburn and Mason. Actually, honestly, when I had my oldest child, I like the billable hour is definitely challenging when you have anything that constricts the number of hours that you can spend working, right? Because the whole the idea of billing by the hour, right? You're rewarded for the number of hours you work, mm-hmm. not necessarily how effective you are in those hours. And so when I had my first son, I started thinking about, you know, should I should I maybe make a transition in house or something? And I had actually a friend from college who it was an in-house attorney at GCI and they were looking for someone with some land knowledge, land use knowledge, and just kind of sort of Sarah was like a serendipitous. Which they uh, have a ton of need for. With yes. Other, you know, lines going everywhere and cables and. Oh yeah. And antenna structures we build all over the state in all kinds of interesting and layered land ownership situations. The, so I remember the first time I was president of my community council, um, years ago, Taco Campbell, but I was also the pr- president of the Federation for Community Councils. Yeah. And that was the first time it was like 13 or 14 when one of those tower things came up. Oh, God, and it yeah. was, no, I don't one, know if it was no eight, one likes towers. I don't know if it was 18 to your GCI, but it was my first time 
coming up with they uh-huh. were going to put one up somewhere and it actually was interesting it looked like a tree yeah they it pretty pretty much blended in all these people came up they were fucking furious they were like yelling oh, yeah. and this was my first time being like wow i guess these towers do have some controversy depending on where they go oh yeah in some neighborhood people were like really mad they were talking about radio you know frequencies and their brains and then the the aesthetics and um, did you deal with that a lot? That yeah, seems so like that, that was that's a big... exactly what I dealt with. That's what oh I was like, hired to do is to deal with. There are, you know, federal and sort of a federal overlay to local land use permitting for antenna structures, in part because there's always these objections, right? So there's a federal framework um, that kind of is an overlay over the local, you know, restrictions and guidelines around tower siting. And so part a big piece of what I did when I first came to GCI was to work on, um, you know, crafting uh and supporting our applications to be able to to build tower structures around the state and it's challenging right i mean it's it's an, a land use that's hard to cite everyone who's a neighbor of it is 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 always is always has some reservations and so it's always the challenge is trying to find that least intrusive alternative that meets the coverage and try to you know make those whatever changes including you know camouflage the ones that look a, like trees yeah. Actually, if you don't really look very closely, you don't notice them. Oh, I think the one at Kincaid, you know, the one at Kincaid, that was that was something I worked on when I was right. Yes, I know that one. Yeah, yeah. that one is. I think that one like it blends in really well. It has a, it has a it has a has a light on top of it because it's a, a bit, it's in a flight path for the airport, but it otherwise I think looks pretty natural. I gotta ask, did um during the remember the COVID the whole five G yeah did that come up? Did you did anybody bring that up or was that a well you know what um, thing a, a friend of my husband's at one point said that you know very seriously he was like you know that COVID vaccine is the government like putting a chip in in you and then we're gonna, I've, I've gonna, people tell me the they're going to activate yeah. it with the five G and I was like well you know I <laughs> I didn't want to tell you but that is what I've been working on so. <laughs> I, I have a friend um, not an acquaintance and they didn't get vaccinated and I said yeah. I just said why not and I, I understand like the hesitation if it's new and it's just technology yeah. and it's I'm, I'm kind of like understanding to that but they said I really think there's some kind of tracking and I thought they were joking yeah. they were not joking yeah that's so great I mean the technology part the health okay it's new a little bit you know whatever well, the irony right is that your phone actually is tracking you every day and you're like everyone who i think has these concerns i would i would I, I don't have any statistics to support this but i would assume that the vast majority of them do have a cell phone have you is, seen that you can turn it off on your phone but the fact the factory i think the default is it tracks where you're going yeah um and i saw an article years ago and i, I turned it off but if you go into it it like shows like where you go for like the past like months right your, mm-hmm. your office your house so it basically tracks your patterns yeah and edward snowden talked about this that if they know your patterns right the government has access or somebody has access to that it'd be very easy to like set you up or you know frame you for something mm-hmm. and just imagine if everybody knows where you're going at any time where you're going to be mm-hmm. it's kind of scary so i turn that off where it doesn't track my movements mm. and like it, it, would, it would show you go to this address for six hours a day this is where you go for eight hours or ten hours it's scary, scary stuff. That's the tracking. Yeah, no, seriously. So, I mean, in terms of the things we, if you are concerned about tracking, I think it's a uh, probably more supportable concern to be concerned about, you know, whether your, your phone knows where you are than whether the vaccination includes so, a microchip. So there wasn't any big, because I mean, some of these in England, weren't they destroying towers about the 5G and the yeah. COVID? That was a thing for a while. I mean, we've certainly been on our radar, you know I mean? If, if it, because it was a concern that was particularly um, heightened in certain areas of, of the world. So it's certainly been something that we were attentive to and, and acknowledged as a potential issue during COVID. So you're at GCI, you're married, mm-hmm. things are going well. Yeah. Who asked you to be the municipal attorney? How'd that come up? Uh, so in the fall of 2017, Bill Falsey was uh, oh, so promoted. We, wait, so we overlapped at GCI. When did you leave GCI? I was there in 15. They bought the company I was working. You know, Network Network Business Systems, NBS? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So they bought us. I don't know if you were involved in that at all. I wasn't. I wasn't doing any M&A stuff at that point. They bought us in 15, and then I stayed. I got moved to the commercial sales um, department. Oh, okay. And end of 15, and then I... Ended up leaving about, I was like, like, oh, like a year later, they were doing some reorg. But so I was there till the end of 16. Oh, got it. Yeah, we did overlap. So I went to GCI, moved to GCI um, in the spring of, gosh, spring of 2015. And oh, so I was August. Yeah. I never, I never saw you at the company meeting. I used to always go to the company meetings at the tower. Oh, yeah. Because I liked that one better. That well, there's like 12 different sessions of the company meeting. So maybe you and I went to different maybe, Yeah, because there's like yeah. different locations, too. Yeah, there's different locations. Actually, that's yeah. a cool thing about GCI working there. You can go to those. It's quarterly, right? Uh, They're twice a year. And, and, you'd, and you'd go, and they would just kind of... 
the executives would break down stuff, and I, I really like going to those. It was oh, good. I, th- I thought that was a hear. really good um, feedback. use of, um, of of resources and time to kind of good, tell people good. what's going on. And so you know that we've been doing over, them over teams for the past year, and actually have found that that makes it. We've had you know attendance rates that have really been exceeded anything we had before, and I think it's also put kind of our our non Anchorage based employees and our Anchorage based employees on more equal footing in those meetings. So mm-hmm. it's good to hear that they you had a positive. I went to every one. I, lo- I think I could have sworn it was quarterly. Maybe maybe it was twice a year, but I, whenever it was, I'd go to all of them. It's twice a year now. I'll admit it may have been different in the past. I I, I think it might have been maybe quarterly. Yeah. yeah. So what? So someone called you, or you got? Yeah, a- literally, someone called me. I was um. So Bill was being promoted, and I was Falsey. Falsey, Phil or- Falsey. Yeah, I know it's very confusing, right? I have Bill Pearson. Bill. One time at the city, I said something. I was having my third child, and I said something about Bill going to the midwives with me and people were like, why are you taking Bill Falls? Oh my God, that's a good like, sc- like, If I was there, I'd be like tweeting, it's, <laughs> oh my God, scandal. And I was like, wrong Bill, wrong Bill. <laughs> uh, so um, Bill Falsey was being promoted and I remember I was in my office at GCI um, and I saw his name pop up on my phone and I thought, oh no, like did something happen? Like why is the municipal attorney calling me? Like did what have we, we done? build something that wasn't permanent? Like what is happening? Um, and he just called and said, you know, I'm going to be promoted and uh, do you want to take my job? Um, and so I had some more conversations with him and some more conversations with folks at, uh, at the municipality and met with the mayor, but then ended up saying yes and, and going over and joining. Um, That's the best kind of job is when you don't apply when you get offered the job. Yeah. Because then you're kind of in the driver's seat. Yeah. I've been really lucky. The last two jobs I've had have both been jobs that have, have come to me as opposed to me having to search them out. So, so you had the land issue experience, which is one issue of the municipality mm-hmm. um, attorney. But I mean, there's so much going on with that. Like, wh- what does that job entail? I mean, I can't even imagine how much it encompasses. I mean, personnel, land. Yeah, it involves everything, you know, everything from internal issues at the municipality as like an operator and employer of people to, you know, policy issues at the assembly and the mayor interested in exploring to supervising the municipal prosecutor at the municipal prosecutor's office, uh, prosecutes all misdemeanor offenses within the municipality. Um, and so it was, I mean, it's a real mishmash. And I think that what the municipal attorney focuses on I mean, varies based on the mayor also varies based on what they know how to do. I feel like I used to joke that what I actually did in that role was like go around to meetings and say like, good idea, bad idea, like unconstitutional idea, and then go <laughs> on to the next meeting because a lot of it is is not necessarily practicing law, but just kind of helping to formulate uh, policy and what we can and can't do as a city. A few former, I won't say who, but a few former speakers of the house have told me that basically it's a, it's a glorified babysitting job, you know, cause you have to like manage all these people and make sure they show up and make sure things don't get crazy. And if somebody's yelling at somebody else, you gotta like deal with it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. It's really a good exa- I mean, analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the municipality I understand has a whole bunch of attorneys, right? They do. Yeah. And so is the municipal attorney, do you kind of oversee them or? You do. And so there's two, well, there's technically kind of three sub departments under the municipal attorney. There's the civil division, um, there's criminal division. Again, the municipal prosecutor leads that, um, the municipal prosecutor is technically a deputy municipal attorney. Um, and then there's the uh, administrative hearing officer and the administrative hearing office that hears, uh, appeals to various different types of administrative citations. So if you have uh, an odor citation for your marijuana business, or you have, um, uh, an animal control citation because your dog has been barking uncontrollably or has bitten someone. Um, you have a right of appeal to the administrative hearing office. And so that's sort of the third prong of the municipal attorney's purview. Um, and the municipal attorney is counsel to the mayor, but is also counsel to the assembly, even though the assembly has their own counsel. So it's kind of a dual dual representation as well. The assembly has their own lawyer? They do, yeah. Who, who's, that? who's that? Dean Gates is their lawyer right oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's at the, the meetings. Yep. So oftentimes at the meetings, did you, you probably knew that, that they're going to ask you to speak? Sometimes I knew, and sometimes I did not know. <laughs> when you took the job, you I assume you oh, knew that that yes. was like a role. Yes, I did. I did know that that publicly. was part of the job. Yes, I was aware that that was part of the job. So how many times did you get? Because sometimes they're like uh, some debates happening, and it's it's um, maybe kind of contentious, and they're like, municipal attorney, what do you think? Yes, that happens a lot. And you're like, uh, you know. <laughs> So you have to follow things. You can't be not paying attention, right? Yes, <laughs> you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention. It's funny. I actually, I was just thinking about this today. Uh, and I think I told you as, as we came in before we started that I, I was chatting with uh, my successor who's just been announced for um, Patrick Burke about, Pat- about being municipal attorney. And 
And one of the things I said to him was, you got to be prepared for the those questions at the assembly where you have no idea what the answer is and how to respond graciously. Yeah, so the Bron- yeah. we're recording this on Tuesday mm-hmm. here, the 8th. So Bronson had a press conference this morning, which I went to, mm-hmm. and he announced uh, Patrick Burke as municipal attorney. Yep. Um, McCoy, Ken McCoy is staying on as the police chief, and then Doug Schrage is fire chief. We used to work for the AFD a long time ago, and then mm-hmm. he went to Fairbanks. But I was told that Patrick, does he go by Tito? Someone uh, told me he goes by Tito, and I, I was like, is that a vodka reference or like a Yugoslavian dictator reference? And I have no idea. I have heard that as well. I know we have some we have some mutual friends who've referred to him by, as Tito, but I, I don't know the story. I'll have to, ask, I have to get him on as a guest, and you can I ask should get him, him on there because if it's, like, if it's the reference if to Tito. If it's a Yugoslavian dictator reference, I want to hear that story. Or if it's a Tito's vodka reference. It's true, probably also Or it could story. just be some other obscure yeah. thing. So, yeah, so he, got, he just got picked um, mm-hmm. today. And I wonder if it's probably different because you went into an existing administration. I did, yeah. I, w- I wonder what it's like going into a brand new administration. Probably a lot different. Oh yeah, in some ways I think it's going to be a lot harder because everyone's learning. There isn't really great preparation for being mayor, right? And I guess unless maybe you've been municipal manager in the past, right? So it's just a steep learning curve, I think, for anyone who steps into those leadership roles and everyone when everyone's learning at the same time. I imagine it's it's probably some good camaraderie in that, but also some challenge that no one no one is an expert yet in how either the people or the structures, right, of how things actually work at the municipality. What was when you were a municipal attorney, what was the biggest um, controversy or one of the things you Maybe something you didn't think you'd have to deal with. That's it was a, a, good, like a big one. A good question. Um, I mean, the ongoing challenge, I mean, the biggest ongoing issue, I feel like that's perennially a cause of controversy is the question of how the municipality uh, addresses the, the homelessness issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would say I, I knew that that was going to be something that I would have to address. I didn't know the degree. I didn't know the law on that issue going into the role. And so having to learn all the nuances of the various different um, lines of constitutional cases that go into governing, you know, how a municipality uh, can and should uh, treat homeless individuals living uh, within the community was a steep learning curve, and and I and and something that I don't think I anticipated would take as much of my focus um, when I took the position. So I didn't realize this until Lee wrote a thing uh, last year mm-hmm. about this. But there's a Ninth Circuit decision, which a lot of folks reference. Yeah, Martin v. Boise. But, but really, there's this consent decree that the mm-hmm. Sullivan administration entered into with the um, ACLU, I think, right? Well, there's a couple different governing pieces of law in Anchorage, and you probably know a bunch of this. I know Lee has, has, has delved into this in depth, right? So there's Martin v. Boise, which is really an Eighth Amendment case, right? It's a case about what is and is not cruel and unusual punishment, right? So what can you criminalize? Can you criminalize the basic acts of living outdoors when you can't provide an indoor opportunity Uh or indoor space in which to do those other things? And then there's, but there's also, I mean, I think he's referencing there, there's a due process case in the municipality's history. I think you're talking about when we were, um, municipality was sued several years ago. And that has to do with what kind of notice and opportunity can, to her, the opportunity to be heard has to be granted before property is removed from a location and potentially disposed of. So it's a, it's a property rights case. And so there's all kinds of different overlying, overlapping rights that go into, that we all have, right, as, as Americans who are subject to the Constitution, and that, but as applied to individuals who are living, who, uh, who are homeless, um, you know, that we that are, have been explored in various different cases, how they apply. I mean, the, the Martin v. Boise case essentially says, and this is what's referenced a lot, is, you know, if you don't have anywhere, like you said, if you don't have anywhere else to house people or put folks, you know, you can't just kick them out or go in there immediately without some kind of notice, right? Um, well, no, it's it's a little more refined than that. Again, it's an Eighth Amendment case, so it has to do with uh, criminalizing the act of being homeless. R- remind me of the Eighth. Is that the... It's a cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, okay, I'm reading this book right yeah. now. It's called OMG WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say? Uh, by Ben Sheehan. It's actually a really good book. It breaks down the whole Constitution, but then it puts it into like lame, like actual oh, English. It's probably a good required it. reading for uh, everyone. But also, yeah. uh, he, he argues in the beginning of the book that like we don't teach civics. Only eight states require a civics um, curriculum. Mostly it's brought into history. And, you know, he's like, what, is he, what did he say? He's like, um, there's like knowing what happened, but like there's also knowing like what they were thinking about when, when, yeah. when it happened. But it just breaks it down. And there's also like historical context and things. 
But um, it's good. That should be like required reading. I do feel like I spent a lot of time as municipal attorney trying to explain to people, like trying to remind people of some basic constitutional principles, right? Like the government can't bulldoze your neighbor's house because you think it's unsightly because that is unconstitutional. It's part of our book club this yes. month. And also there's so many references to ships in the water in the constitution. Oh, it's so funny. I hadn't because thought of, about like, that. Letters of mark and reprisal. So they used to be able to, you can still do that actually. The government can, it's called privateering. They can yeah. enlist like private people to go and basically ransack their enemy ships mm -hmm. and they get to take some of the stuff and the government decides what's it. There's all these, like he keeps saying, and there are these like another, another ship issue or another, another boat issue, you know, watch, That's watch funny. that. That's funny. It's a really good book. I think, I think okay. you, I think you'd like it. Anyway, so I'll go back to the eighth. Yeah. You can't, uh, be cruel and unusual to people. Yes. Which is good. Yeah. And it's, that's an important concept in, you know, in people's thinking about the homelessness question, you know, I think I hear a, a common question is, well, why don't you just like arrest all the homeless people? Right. And it's like, well, first of all, uh, many of the things that people are doing when, when people are irritated by their presence, um, are not illegal, right? So you can't just arrest someone because they're un unsightly and near your business or, you know, on the sidewalk. And then if that was the case. I'd be in jail. Yeah. Well, you know, lucky for all of us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also can't, you know, a, a, the th a number of the things that are offenses that are more frequently, uh, committed by individuals who are unhoused, um, are things that are ticketable offenses or they're very low level misdemeanors and the eighth amendment does preclude I mean, you can't, you can't put someone incarcerate someone for a year because of public defecation or something like that. You know I mean? That's just, it's not, it's not a constitutional approach to, to managing um, that kind of situation. So I think it's, it's a, that's a really important, it's an it, important it, amendment for the, the, the other, the other, issue. the other good part in there is the habeas corpus deal because they used to like back in Europe, they would just take you away. Yeah, they couldn't That's tell why, why they, you know, what body of evidence was was you know subjecting you to that. So, so if you get arrested, you basically the Constitution requires that you get put be in front of a judge, and they have to tell you what what you did. And yeah, love that. It's good. They also had the it's a good uh, part of our system. What's the ex post facto stuff? And then the, there's another one that starts with an A, um, where they pass you do something and they pass a law afterwards saying you can't do that. Yes, they, they and then that. you can't be in trouble for something that was that was passed after the date of your offense. Probably that was big in Europe. They would just uh, pass. Long time ago, they would say, "We don't like you. We're going to pass a law, a law against what you, you did illegal." Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the homeless. We did a video two years. Maybe you saw it two years ago. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, and and, and we went out to all these camps and mm -hmm. we talked to people. And what I found to be frustrating was a lot of the folks we talked to. The further you get away from downtown, the more well off people are. Mm -hmm. The more kind of the ones downtown, I think, are some of the more mentally ill, and it's it's a little. Mm. But when you get like Campbell Creek area, you run into folks that are also probably struggling with addiction or mental illness, but mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of, they can like take care of themselves. And many of them were like, yeah, we, we like it out here. You know, it's pretty good mm -hmm. at summertime. And, um, that's one of the, I think frustrations some people have is these camps, people are out there and there's like bicycles and chop shops and propane yep. tanks and tools. And I think things have gotten better with the Sullivan deal. I've talked to some folks downtown, some of the business owners we used to deal with two years ago in our video. And they pretty much were like, yeah, things are great. Yeah. You know, everyone's, at the Sullivan and the problems got better, but that's shutting down in September unless they keep it open. I guess it's pretty expensive. Yeah. And I mean, that's, the, I think that's the heart of the, you know, the heart of the, the challenge, right. Is that like, you know, no one should have to live, you know, no one should have to be homeless. No one should have to live in an unhoused situation. Um, but there are legitimate challenges and problems too, right? No one should get to run a bicycle chop shop and, and steal bikes and sell them for parts either. So there's a bunch of different challenges interwoven in trying to make progress and headway with the issue in a way that's humane and also effective. And there's economic challenges too, yeah. just like how, how, how much people, money people are making now and opportunities. I think mm -hmm. there's a hundred, hundreds probably of elements to that. And that's why it doesn't get solved very easily. Oh yeah. I mean, if someone had a solution that we would be, be very wealthy by now, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about the big one here, the Campbell Lake yeah, article. Yeah. You were a municipal attorney. I was. And the article a few months later resulted in a joint statement from the municipality and the state. Mm -hmm. And I kept going to the meetings, if you remember. I think you were you were there at some yeah. of them. Because we kept getting contacted to the point where I was getting tired of it by hundreds of emails saying, what's going on? How do I use the easements? Mm -hmm. And the city hadn't done at that point anything. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe tell me how you found out about that issue. And, and after the article came out, it was a kind of a thing where people call in the, 
We're calling you, or was it? You know, I'm trying to remember how it initially came to our attention. I, maybe it was DNR who reached out to us, or did you write us a letter? Someone reached out to the to mm-hmm. the municipal attorney's office, and it ended up in my lap uh, for kind of a twofold reason, right? Like um, when you're the municipal attorney, things that seem like they're going to be particularly comforter, con- you know, controversial or particularly public, you end up with the municipal attorney as opposed to a deputy. And also, as we you know talked about earlier, I had some previous experience in the law of navigable waterways. And so in terms of who actually had the expertise to advise on the core question of, you know, a navigability determination and whether Campbell Lake should be considered a navigable waterway, it just, you know, naturally kind of fell to me the confluence of those two things. It's so fascinating the history, you know, it's, yeah. it's not a natural lake. It's been dammed. And mm-hmm. then we later found out that the city actually rebuilt the dam in like 1990 Oh yeah, uh, and they maintain it, so it's it's just the whole story, the history of it's interesting. But um, what led to that joint statement? I mean, was it? Well, I would say, I mean, navigability is really a, a state level decision, right? I mean, it's a we've talked about this a bit that you know it's a conclusive navigability decision is only achieved through litigation, and I understand now that there is or may be litigation pending they, about that. So they, they haven't started litigation, but we got access to a, a large twenty page document that the, the homeowner association hired Holmes Metal Barcott. Mm-hmm. I think Jim Reeve, was he the old municipal? Oh manager? yeah. He was, he was municipal attorney. Under or attorney. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, uh, he's been working on it. They haven't started litigation yet, but I think they're teeing up for it. Yeah. And it will, I mean, put aside all of the human elements and whatever else of this, it, if, if that comes to litigation, it will be an interesting case because there are a number of interesting specific you know, factors in this case about, you know, about the navigability of that waterway that will be interesting to be adjudicated. So and purely academically. One but. of the easements, that's the first one we found. Actually, we didn't even know about, we didn't even write about or know about, and it makes sense now because that section line is a straight oh, line. Oh, the easement on the north side of the lake? Or, yes, we didn't yeah. know about that one. We just wrote about the one on Senator Von Imhoff and her husband's property and the neighbor. Yeah. That was the one that D- DNR or Fish and Game told us about when Paxson yeah, because there's actually because the, because there was the vacation of the original, like the original portion of the sectional easement was vacated. Part part of it was on yeah. the south side, and the and that was result of when Vanimhoff and her husband bought the property, they were aware of the easement. They tried to get it vacated with DNR, and then yeah, they the, vacated the section line and in re- and re- and platted that that more limited easement that mm-hmm. is on the on the plat for that property. Um, yeah, yep. so we, so in making the joint statement, I mean, we looked to DNR essentially because, you know, short of a, a litigation, deci- uh, you know, a litigated determination of navigability, the next layer, I mean, the state controls navigable waterways. So we looked to the state to say, do you think this is a navigable waterway? And they said yes and explained their rationale. And we, we agreed with that. So we joined in the statement. It's kind of ironic. The guy in the North end, mm-hmm. who I kind of feel a little bad for because the house was built in 76 mm-hmm. and it's basically on top of the section line easement which yeah. becomes Jewel Lakes built on that section line. Um, he didn't even know about it, and we didn't know about it until that yeah. thing came out. But he hired Ashburn and Mason. Oh, you know that? My people. I yeah, think, your people. So it's kind of like... I think I did whole... know that. Yeah, it makes sense. They have a very strong uh, land practice, which is you know why I was there originally. The other ir- irony is um, a few uh, months ago, Governor Dunleavy had the press conference about the navigable waterways mm-hmm. and had John Sturgeon there. And, you know, I asked about, I said, what about Campbell Lake? I'm just curious because mm-hmm. there's been no work. There's been no trails or mm-hmm. improvements. It still feels like private property. Mm-hmm. And we still keep getting contacted by people like, how do we, mm-hmm. how do we access it? But I asked about that navigable waterway mm-hmm. specifically. And <laughs> there wasn't much of a, well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's navigable. Have a good time. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting, again, like purely academically, Campbell Lake is a very interesting you know, land use problem, right? Because it's a couple different pieces, right? It's the question of the section line easement and, you know, it, does it still exist on both sides of the lake and et cetera? And then we have, then there's the the separate platted easement, which has its own history. And then there's the question of navigability of the waterway itself. And then again, I think, um, who knows if it will end up being adjudicated, but if it actually is, it will be an interesting case Order. because of the part of that question of like, is the navigable waterway the whole the current bed of the of the navigable waterway, or the previous bed before it was subject mm-hmm. to any human intervention, right? So, if they did something, would they do state or federal court, or would it be up to them? Uh, I believe they would do state court, but you know, folks always will they 
could pretend, I don't think there's a federal hook that would, that would merit going to federal court. One of the funny stories when, after we wrote the first story, somebody, we had all these comments and mm-hmm. emails, but this guy was like new to Anchorage and he was on a pa- paddle board and he like paddled out there and he got stuck and he couldn't get out and he described being like berated and yelled at and he basically had to beg some people to like let him leave. Yeah. He's like, I just want to go home and get to my wife. You know? It's interesting that you have heard from so many people. I always assume people would, I mean, it's not, I guess, someone who spends a lot of time taking their family to various lakes around town, right? Like I would select a lake that has good parking and like a playground, you know, <laughs> as opposed well, to, you know, just a skinny little access. I think, yeah, over the years, people have tried to get on there different yeah. ways. And some people would float on or some people would you know, through some of the vacant lots maybe, but mm-hmm. it was, uh, the big one is a winter time. People would go on there to ski to or ski one guy or was ice, ice fishing and yeah. he was like escorted off the lake by some folks. And, mm-hmm. and they also have the snow machine issue over there, mm-hmm. which is another issue that's come up because they, they can, they snow machine on the lake. And mm-hmm. some people have said, well, why can they do that? And it's, um, that might be something that comes up, but it's no. still ongoing. It is. Yeah. No it's longer for you though. You're not, you're that's not, true. I've, I've stepped you guys have any towers over there. <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> so, so going back to the the new uh, municipal attorney. Yeah. Um, I guess what do you think? You were you were I was commented earlier that it's you came in, in the middle of it, but for a new administration, I mean, they basically they're starting from essentially scratch. Mm-hmm. What would you? I mean, what would you? What am I trying to say? I guess how would you? Descri- I mean, how, how do you think that's going to go for the next you know several months? Well, I think it, it's my impression is that it is sort of the same thing every time there's a new administration, right? That everyone has to learn the. There are a lot of limitations on what the municipality can do, does and can do that I think a lot of people aren't aware of when they come into working at the muni, right? In terms of thinking about like the municipality is a tax cap jurisdiction, right? So there's limitations to can't just you know, wildly increase taxes because there's something new you want to pay for. The flip side of that is that municipal spending is pretty lean, right? I mean, there's, you can't generally make significant space in the budget without cutting core services like safety that are very near and dear to voters on all sides, you know, all parts of the spectrum. Isn't, isn't a huge part of the budget? Police. 80%? Like, yeah. stat, like people? Police. I mean, it's police, fire, and snow removal really is is the vast majority of the budget that's not school district, right? You look at, you take the whole school district budget out and you look at just what's the non-school district budget and it's like police, fire, and snow removal. And then everything else kind of hanging around the edges, right? So I think that there is a learning curve that every administration uh, goes through of figuring out the limitations of what they can and can't do and then also getting up to speed on, you know, that those are kind of the practical and monetary limitations, also legal limitations on what you can and can't do. So your learning curve was built, Bill was still there. He was manager. He was, yeah, he was still there. So for Patrick, it's, you know, Bill was there and all kinds of people had been there for a while. Now, Patrick, it's like a new manager. We're not sure that is yet a new mayor, a new, new, all kinds of people. That's probably going to be a lot more difficult to get going. Yeah, but again, in. not unprecedented, right? I mean, that's what Bill had when he started. Mm-hmm. And I, and well, I guess Dennis, when he was, Dennis was the municipal attorney under Sullivan and he had, he, I think probably has the most municipal law experience of anybody in that role in recent memory. He had been a deputy municipal attorney and a long history with municipal law before that. But yeah, so the last time we saw this kind of thing was 15 when Berkowitz took over for, yep. for after Sullivan. Yeah. And before that, the last time would have been Sullivan was three, two terms, so yep. that would have been nine. Yep. So it seems it's funny how we had um, Berkowitz, and then before that Sullivan, and then before that Begich, and then before that I think it was Wirch. And you can kind of go back and forth with like yeah, kind of sway back and you forth. You got Democrat, you had Knowles, and you had um, um, Mystrom, and then you kind of you know it goes back and forth. So yeah. So even the COVID I think affected the race a lot, but I think already it was already normally naturally swinging to the other side. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, kind of like the federal government that way a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting. You said, so the, munis- the, your, the municipal attorney does stuff for the mayor and the assembly? They do, yeah. Because in the legislature, they have their own lawyers, and then the governor has his own lawyers. They do, and it, it leads to endless conversations with the municipality about privilege, right? Like, who owns the privilege? Can the municipal... You know, can the assembly claim privilege as with the municipal attorney and, you know, over items that can't be shared with the mayor and vice versa? And it's, it's I mean, that's interesting. Does, yeah. I wonder if stuff ever gets out that, like, somebody's mad about it got out. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is just complex, right? I mean, we we actually have gotten opinions from various different ethics council at the bar, and it's a complicated and sticky question. It's not simple, simple because the state, you're right, it's much more clear. There's a legislative council; they deal with the legislature. So, so other other like Palmer or Wasilla, they have the the weak mayor, so they have like a manager that has more power. So I, I guess they have an attorney as well, but it's different where Anchorage has yeah. a separate mayor, separate assembly. And Anchorage is also different. I mean, Anchorage is different in the municipal attorney sense in that the municipal attorney is a political appointee who generally turns over with the mayor, right? And that's different than most other municipal attorneys in the state um, to the extent there are in-house municipal attorneys are career appointments, right? Like they, they will stay, you know, at, Mayor, mayoral administration after mayoral administration. Um, so that's a difference in Anchorage. So well. the assembly has their own attorney. Yep. But then they have the municipal attorney as well. So can they, they do. can the assembly member come to you and say, hey, I want an opinion on this? Or Oh, yeah. When when I was municipal attorney and the other municipal attorneys, yeah, the assembly can, can and does come directly to the municipal attorney's office and can make use of the resources of the civil division as well because um, the assembly council can't deal with all of the different needs of the assembly as they work through things so interesting it's so different than because like in the legislature they have you know they have their own department the yeah. legislative legal they have their own lawyers and then the governor has department of law and oftentimes they're at odds with each other yeah on issues that's interesting i didn't know that that they could use you as well yeah so are you, what if the municipal attorney is at odds with the assembly attorney well, could that happen? <laughs> that could happen, right? I mean, in terms of like, if we had a different legal opinion, yes. I mean, that can happen as between any lawyers, right? I mean, every you go to four different lawyers, you might get four different opinions on something. So, right, but if it it's like within happen. the government, yeah, that's more interesting. And I mean, generally speaking, I'd say when if there is division between the mayor and the assembly on a legal issue, the municipal attorney will default to being the mayor's counsel, and the assembly counsel will default to representing the uh, assembly. There's certain requirements, like if the assembly is sued, um, so in litigation, the municipal attorney represents the assembly in litigation. So it automatically goes to the to the municipal mm-hmm. attorney's office, whereas the assembly counsel is there more for sort of ongoing legal advice and legislative drafting. So the assembly attorney is kind of hired by the assembly, yes, and, and they're, the assembly decides that one, where the municipal yeah. attorney's mayor, but they have to be confirmed. Yep, that's Ooh, how'd your confirmation go? Is that it was pretty uneventful. I'm trying to remember. I don't even really remember. Um, it's interesting. On in the legislative side, they have like hearings. Yeah. Very public for all these commissioners and AG. Um, it seems like on the municipal side, it's less public. No, it's publicly noticed. I mean, it's, I think. Uh, do they have like hearings or? I, I guess it. I mean, they, I think it has changed over the years, I guess I would say. And there's been um, more of a focus on actually doing some questioning of candidates in recent years. Mine was, a, I mean, it was, a, it was a work session, so it wasn't a, you know, a standard Tuesday night assembly meeting, but it was a publicly noticed session. I don't think anyone like came. No one really cared. Yeah, no, on the, on the, on the, on the governor's side, yeah. those get sometimes pretty, yeah, you know, they do. depending who it is and yep. what position, like AG or, you know, like a DNR commissioner. Mm-hmm. Well, how many votes did you get the unanimous? Yes, my recollection nice. is I did. Yeah. I was on the Anchorage Sister Cities Commission for three years, and oh. um, I got I got the unanimous. And I don't That's brag, good. but That's it was funny That's when important. they put me on there. It was Berkowitz appointed me four years ago, and then Amy Kaufman told me because I wanted to be on there for a long time, and I go, "Oh my gosh, it's great!" Like you know, because I speak Russian, and Magadan's one of our yeah. cities, sister cities, and I go, um, "This is like December of six seventeen when I got back from Australia," and I go, "Oh my god, I'm gonna like." Let me like you know, t- tweet this out there. She goes, "Hey, just 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 uh, just go ahead and wait till you get confirmed." <laughs> Did you uh, get to visit any of our sister cities? I, you know, I was actually going to planning to go to Magadan. Um, oh. They had a big um, celebrate uh, monument they were going to do at the Alaska um, Siberia um, during World War II. The the Lend Lease stuff with the airplanes, mm-hmm. the um, Alaska Siberia Air Road, basically, and they were going to have a huge monument they were going to erect for Alaska and Siberia for all the help we gave the uh, Russians in World War II. And that was in, that was supposed to be in May of 2020. Oh, wow. So the COVID. Yeah, that kind of I was actually going to go. I, I actually reached out to Jason uh-huh. Bakkenstad, the mayor's chief of staff. Yeah. Um, and I was really hoping, because they invited us, and mm-hmm. I was hoping maybe the mayor might, you know, it's a long shot to go to that. But it was a huge, um, they actually have a um, monument in Fairbanks. Uh, your husband's from Fairbanks, right? He is, yeah. They have a monument from Fairbanks that was put up, I think, in 17... And the ambassador was there, mm-hmm. the Russian ambassador, 
um, the one who was involved in the Trump stuff. What was oh, that? yeah. Kislyak. Yeah. He was there, and so was Lavrov, the, the foreign minister of Russia. Mm -hmm. There was a huge ceremony in Fairbanks. Okay. And I think 2017. So they basically have a similar uh, type monument they, they built in Magadan. Uh -huh. And yeah, I wanted to go. And I've, I've, been to, I've been to Darwin, though. I lived in Darwin for three months when I was oh, okay. in Australia. They're one of the they're one of the sister cities. Have you been to any? I have not. That was like a perk I never got to take advantage of. It seems like so I was going through some of the old minutes and back in like the eighties and nineties there was more money, especially in the nineties. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they used to have like junkets <laughs> where people would go to some of these cities. They'd have trips or they'd have yeah. you know, that's not really like if I were to go to Magadan, I would have had to had to pay for it. Yeah. Um on my own. But we um you ever go to that that little storage closet in the eighth floor? Of the, of the, you know, the mayor's conference room? Uh, the one that's like, if you come in and you turn to the left, it's like right there on the wall. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, there's like, there's like a big conference room, right? And there's, yeah. a, there's a big closet. Yeah. And most of it's sister city stuff. Oh, So yeah. one day I said, I was I was chair and I said, we got to go through this. There's like all this stuff in there. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. There's like pictures and gifts and, and all these kind of things from Russia and Australia. And, you know, Incheon, North Korea is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, oh, it's the one in Japan. Oh my gosh, why am I blanking on the one in Japan? Uh, I'll think of it in a second. But we have all these. I don't remember either. We have mm -hmm. seven now. They they added Harbin China. Um, Is there anything good in there? Did you guys discover any any hidden so, treasure? So yeah, so we're taking all this stuff out, and there's all these cool things and gifts and different things. And the closet's pretty big, so yeah. I walk all the way to the back, and I'm taking everything. We're taking everything out and kind of organizing it. And uh, I find I find these four kind of like paintings. They're facing towards the wall, and I, I look at one, and it's like it's a beautiful painting of the Anchorage downtown um, kind of architect, you know, the, the mm -hmm. landscape of downtown Anchorage, and they're they're oil paintings, and there's four of them separately, but when you put them together, they paint the whole downtown Anchorage, mm -hmm. and I go like, what the hell are these doing back here? These are amazing. They, they're very very pretty, and I looked at the back, and it was painted by Doreen Lorenz. I don't know if you. Know her? She's like a news type, but she used to mm -hmm. be an artist. Anyways, they were the most amazing paintings you could you could think of, and I was like, "What are we like? What are these doing here?" You know, and they'd been there, I think, since Maestrom. Oh wow! So now, but now they're hanging in the conference room. Yeah, I was gonna say I've seen them. We got them hung up. Look at that, having an impact on your so small small little impact. Just changing things for the we, better. We, we we also found all of the original charters. I think five of the six original charters of when the cities got joined up with Anchorage and they oh. were signed by them. So we got those hung up as well in the conference room. Hmm. So that's my one impact. I've I admit had. I haven't noticed those as much as I've noticed the, the painting, the triptych. There, there was some pictures. There was like all kinds of stuff back there. It was incredible. Some of it probably worth money. There was hmm. really cool um, jewelry, not jewelry, but some like uh, kind of, I don't know, figurines and things that were, we put those in the, in the big case, hmm. the, the big uh, glass case there. So oh, yeah, yeah. I had an impact in my life. I guess that's what yeah, you're making the world better. That's what it is. That's good. Well, I'm glad you came on. Yeah, um, likewise. Don't want to do this for a while. So what's the, what's the, what's the plan for the summer? Any big hiking or what are you? Yeah, I mean, uh, we have three children. So we have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. So we don't quite do the level of adventures that we used to do. But we got we have a lot of kind of family adventuring planned. You know, camping trips and. Uh, you know, we have a flat bottom riverboat we take out, so we'll oh, nice. go out and do that. And well, the kids are starting to get better at biking, so it's fun to do some more, like a little bit of single track riding with them and other things like that. This is the most awkward transition ever, but I totally forgot about the, the Heidi Dragus <laughs> reference um, about breastfeeding. Yeah, we just got to like talk about breastfeeding before we can wrap up. So I, so I, I got, we got to do it. So I did a podcast with Heidi Dragus in Juno a few weeks ago. Yeah, and she had done a post when she was still commissioner of labor about breastfeeding in the airport in Se Seattle. And it was this big mm -hmm. thing and a lot of comments and you had kind of helped her with that, right? For Anchorage. Yeah. And I'm trying with, to remember, I think this was a separate post. She had posted on Facebook about the lack of, uh, you know, accommodations for breastfeeding in the Denina center on Facebook. And this is when I was municipal attorney and I saw the post and was like, Oh my God, well, we have to do something about that. And I, it was actually a, a, a concern that was near and dear to my heart, both because, as you said, you know, I have three kids, so I've, you know, had to breastfeed in a bunch of different places over the course of my my life with kids. But I, um, I had actually when I was, you know, especially my second son, I remember doing some work at the municipality, going to these public meetings for an issue that GCI was involved in, and having to stand in the middle of the like open area of the municipal 
bathrooms to pump because that was the only place that had a plug. And I mean, yes. this is, this is something I've done. I mean, the worst place that ever happened to me is I was at a work meeting in Homer and I had, it was at Fat Olives, a restaurant, which I'll Boy, forever, I love that. I love that will forever be grateful to their wait staff because they're, um, the plugs in their bathrooms weren't working. And so I appealed to this female waiter and she cleared everybody out of the kitchen and let me like stand in the middle of the kitchen <laughs> to pump, to plug That's in very accommodating. Pump. It was very nice of them. But so as a result of all this, I was very uh, sensitive to, you know, to hearing her concern. And it's clearly, I mean, access to the Denina hosts a huge array of events. And it's, it was flabbergasting that we didn't have a designated space for the people who attend those events or who work in that facility uh, to to pump during, you know, their workday or during their uh, whatever or they're doing. Or just breastfeed, too. Yeah, or breastfeed. Breast yeah, exactly. Too, right? um, and so I raised it with Bill Falsey and we talked about it and we actually came up with a series of solutions and ordered those um, lactation pods for the Denina Center and for the Egan Center. And then we um, had a lactation space designated in City Hall, a room that was uh, set up with a lock. And, yeah, I see and those pods more and more in the airports. Yeah, they're pretty cool. You'll see them. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I think men don't maybe think about that as much unless maybe yeah. you have a kid or. I mean, like, I didn't think about it until I had kids. So, you know. Yeah, so that, that's the that's a connection. So you listened to that podcast, right, with Heidi? I did as part of doing my homework before it. coming on this podcast. There's a good Bill Falsey podcast too. I did. Uh, oh, I haven't listened to that one. That was before the COVID, but after the earthquake. We talked about the earthquake thing. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, you were there during the earthquake, right? I was there during the earthquake. Oh, I got to ask you about that. Where were you at Anchorage? I was driving to. I was supposed to go to a, a meeting about the MLMP transaction, and I was actually on. I was right by the uh, international off-ramp from Minnesota. So I was driving. Over that car sank? Yeah, like I, was, sinking? I was trying to get off that off-ramp to drop my uh, then two-year-old off at my in-law's house. And I was like, and I was late. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Why are these people not going up the off-ramp? Why are they stopped in the middle of the highway? And it was because, the, you know, it had fallen into the ground. <laughs> So had you felt the earthquake like before that? Oh, or? I did, but in the car. I don't know if you talked to other people who've been. If you're in a, several like, people, yeah, it wasn't as yeah, it wasn't as notable. I spent like the first minute being like, "Is something wrong with my car? Like, am I getting a flat tire?" And then by the time I kind of figured it out, it was over. So it was much less notable, I think, I, in a vehicle. I think Bill was he had dropped his kid off at school. Yeah, he was in the parking lot at Denali Montessori, right? Uh, yeah, and then and then he was like, uh "Oh, this is probably one I got to deal with." Yeah, but that was I was at home. I've told this story before, but it was I was getting out of bed at like eight. I was naked. I was like, mm -hmm. "That's what's sleep like naked." Tell the, tell the <laughs> listeners. And I it started going, and I was like, "Oh shit!" And then it stopped, and I said, "Okay, that's it." And then it really started going, and I was like so freaked out. My refrigerator and my oven had been pushed into the middle of the kitchen. Oh wow! Stuff had fallen over. I actually really thought my house was coming down. I'm I'm on the two story condo, oh, so wow. I was a little you know you feel it more when you're higher. Yeah. Bill Walker was in the elevator. Oh, I heard that. I we did a podcast. Uh, yeah. A Zoom one several months ago. Oh wow! And yeah, he said people were like real scared. I think the people who were on the, I mean, who were on the seventh and eighth floor of City Hall were just terrified. You know, what I mean, it seems like it was, and it was. It's amazing to me how different it seems to differently. It seems to have impacted buildings and structures based on how tall they are and where in town they are, right? Because I was mm -hmm. in the car and I was like, oh, it was an earthquake. Like it wasn't that bad. And then I pulled up to the off ramp, which had fallen into the earth, and I was like, "Well, maybe it was actually worse than I thought." And I then I, you know, drove to my in laws and their house in Spinard, which survived, you know, the the big sixty four quake, was um, was totally like basically untouched. And so I was like, "Oh, well, maybe it wasn't that bad after all. I should probably get to work. The meeting shall be starting." And then drove downtown and went into City Hall, which was a huge mess. And we learned a lot about which bookshelves should be attached to the wall. Um, right during that experience. So you didn't at that point know how bad it was or you kind of, maybe you saw the, I guess you saw the road collapse. So yeah, I saw the road collapse. And then I think it gradually, be, it became more apparent to me when I made it downtown and there were, you know, people running around outside of buildings and the alarm at the museum was going off. I think you could hear alarms kind of buzzing I, around and me and my buddy, we were like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Our power went out and we're, we're like, let's go figure out what happened. We're driving around. And that's when everything started closing. The Fred Meyer, the cars, the, yeah. you know, the grocery stores. And then I was like, man, maybe we should get some waters or some food. And I'll never forget this. We go to the, I live on Old Sewer and Dowling area. And we go to, there's like a little gas station liquor store over there. So we go in there and this guy's walking out with like two 30 packs of like Coors Light or whatever <laughs> and like a bottle. And I was like, man, you're. He made the right choice, right? Because didn't the liquor stores close for a while? Because they had a lot of a lot of broken some, bottles and I things. I mean, some did. So like the, was, what the yeah. Oak and Keg, the car is Oak and Keg on. I think it was Huffman, 
Remember the picture? Oh, there was every like everything was broken on the wine. floor. Yeah, every everywhere. wine bottle was yeah. broken. But I was like looking at the guy. I was like, man, you're. He's like, you're getting ready. He's like, he's like, if we're fucking dying, like if this is gonna go down, I'm going down like with mm. my booze. <laughs> Everybody else was getting like water and food. This guy had two thirty packs and like a bottle of like. Jack that was like the COVID preparation though, right? Like I remember when we things started to get really terrifying with COVID. My husband and I both had like a panic weekend and we were both like admitted to each other. We were like, well, I went out and did some prepping today. And I was like, well, what'd you get? And he was like, I got a flat of spam. And I got like, wow, and, and he got like a whole pile of toilet paper. And he was like, what did you get? And I was like, I got a, a bunch of boxes of wine and several crates of Girl Scout cookies. Very and good. <laughs> we were I, like, like, which is a disaster, right? I was in Juneau, and then I came back for the weekend. Yeah. This is before things got crazy. It was like mid-March. That's when all the stuff started with the toilet paper. Yeah. And that's like the weirdest one of all the things. But I went to um, I went to cars, and a lot of stuff was there. But a lot of stuff like toilet paper and, yeah. and certain cleaning, you know, like, air, you know, aeros- mm-hmm. um, cleaning stuff or wipes were gone. But I went and bought um, a bunch of ramen soup, oh, like yeah. a lot, and um, <laughs> and I was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't take so much. Like, I feel kind of bad. So I bought, and then I went to REI, and I bought a bunch of those. You know, when you go hiking, you have those little like oh, like the freeze dried, yeah, meals. which are great yeah. to, when you're hiking. I bought several of those. I feel like this is just evidencing that we're all really bad at disaster preparation. It's good we have, because I mean, we would we would not have survived long with wine, cookies, spam, and toilet paper. Well, the booze is actually for me. I mean, that's that's a good. <laughs> You need that. Um, the municipality, didn't they do that zombie, um, that zombie apocalypse thing? Have you, they did this, I'm not sure if the municipality or with some group, but they would do this like zombie thing as like a way to kind of tell people like what you need. Uh-huh. It was like a training thing. I think it was called the zo- zombie apocalypse. Oh, what, train- do you, what do you need in the face of a zombie apocalypse? Did you well, learn? Essentially they were doing it to like say, here's what you need if something goes like earthquake, yeah. natural disaster, and it was kind of a fun way to do it. They've done it a few times. Okay. And you know, I mean all the, you know, water, flashlights, um, there's all kinds of things you should, and most people just don't have them. Yeah. They don't have that stuff. Yeah, that's and, fair. You know, if, if we ever had a like a 64 type thing, you wonder like, you know, how many people would, I got some friends I'm like in the valley, they're, they're, they're kind of preppered up, I'm going, I'm going to their house. Yeah, I would say we're kind of mid, mid, midway on the prepper scale and that we, my husband's a, a hunter, so we at least have like a, you know, a, a freezer full of meat that we could, I guess, survive on mm-hmm. if we needed to. But and you got that wine and... That's true, wine and Spam. Girl Scout cookies and Spam. Those are gone now. I mean, we, it's been a year of this crisis, so... You, you got to re-up them. That's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, after true. I leave here, I'm going to go buy some more stuff for the garage. <laughs> Good. Well, Becky Wynn Pearson, uh, great, great doing the podcast. Great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. So um, we'll do another one. And uh, if anything's, if any towers are going up in my neighborhood, you can, you can tell me about it. <laughs> I don't care. I'll keep you posted. I don't care. But that some, I guess some people do. Yeah, yeah. So great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks, okay. Jeff. Folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or uh, want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.